new recording mechanisms in the works. We should live right now, live streaming. But don't check because there's a 15 second delay and it'll be really weird hearing that echo back up. So if you could just watch me and not the live stream, that would be great. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Uh, and then also think about turning to Acts chapter 18, uh, just so you know where it's at, because uh, that provides us with some, some background there. We'll be in both of these places for the introduction to 1 Corinthians. By way of introduction also, uh, you should know Wednesday and Thursday Bible study uh, back on this week. Dinner's at 6. Yay! Dinner's at 6.30 uh, here with Bible study at 7, and then on Thursday mornings at 10 in the morning. There's the same rerun. We'll be starting First Chronicles. So we're in 1 Corinthians and 1 Chronicles just to mess with everybody, okay? Just, just so I can stumble over my, my words. Um, let's pray, and then I'll tell you how this is going to go. Jesus, thank you for letting us worship you. Um, thank you for uh, just the, the variety uh, in, in worship. We worship you in, in song and in silence and in the study of your word and in obeying your word and alone and in fellowship. And, and your, your body is, is beautiful. Your church is beautiful. And we pray that um, as we're starting a new thing today, um, a new book in a new year, we pray that you would cultivate in our hearts a deep love and appreciation for your church. Um, and as quick as we are to say, to ask for, for love and, and maybe patience for a flawed church, we pray for eyes to see things as you see them, a, a bride to be presented spotless, blameless. Give us that love for the things that you love, Lord. Pray that you would anoint the teaching of your word, that you would anoint our ears, our eyes, our heart to be able to receive spiritual things that, are, that can only be spiritually discerned. We ask your blessing on your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, so uh, I, got, I have a, a non-related introduction uh, before we get into verse 1, but I, I want you to get there first. We are going to get into 1 Corinthians, but I have, I have sort of a, another announcement sermon, announcement, uh, part 2, just like uh, we've done before. Uh, this Sunday is a, a sort of anniversary uh, for me. My first Sunday morning as day in one place for a long time. So I, I say 10 years, I think, is a good start. I hope the first 10 years is a fraction of the total. Although it, there is some satisfaction in seeing that our church is above average and, you know, something. Uh, so um, when, when I started out 10 years ago, there, there were two specific things, or two that I'll mention, uh, that, that worried me. Um, first was... Uh, just a, a church culture that has developed in American evangelicalism, but especially Calvary chapels, that has been senior pastor-centric to a fault. Um, the, oftentimes, churches are planted and led by extremely capable multitaskers who do a thousand different jobs, many of them well. And this, this can become a default position in many churches. And uh, contrary to what you may think, especially in small churches, actually, it's a bigger problem in small churches, um, this worried me for multiple reasons. One, I knew there was a lot of things I don't know how to do and lots of things that I can do that I'm bad at. Um, but more importantly, that kind of um, way to do church just didn't strike me as healthy or 
biblical in a situation where one person is that essential if something happens to them then you don't have church that doesn't seem right that doesn't seem like that would be the way it should happen and that so that worried me then um it didn't look like a new testament model not sustainable not biblical not healthy now as you're I'm sure you're aware, if you go to church here, our church is full of servants who do things that I don't do. We, we have people serving. We are a body made up of many active members. And I can't say and never could say for a minute that, you know, I do everything and no one does anything or anything like that. So I'm the truth for our congregation. But what I can say with a healthy dose of regret is that I have been ineffective at best at training up leaders within the church. Um, I am supported well by you. You are a congregation that all the other pastors are jealous of because of how well you take care of your pastor. Um, but, I don't, but I don't know that many of you have been trained up by me on how to lead and serve the body of Christ. I'd like you to pray that this would change. More on that a little later. I said there were two things in particular that concerned me at the outset 10 years ago. The first was the fear of being a one-man show, as can happen in churches just by default, by no one's intention, um, and just all the problems that go with that. The second concern that kept me up at night was just that I would wither up and dry out like a prune and would quit or become jaded and lose the joy and wonder of Scripture and the holy things that I get to handle. Um, There is a thing I've heard called ministry burnout that I'd heard of then and not yet experienced, but knew I needed to avoid it if I could. Um, Turns out you can't actually avoid it, but you can manage it. Uh, So in the beginning of 2012, the board and I took these things into consideration and determined that after 10 years, which seemed like a really long time at the time, Pastor Sam would take a sabbatical. Uh, One purpose, perhaps the more obvious for this, would be uh, to tend to my own soul so that my soul is in a condition to do this for another 10 years. Uh, Pastor Lance Ralston, he told me that this is sharpening the ass. A handful of guys in our church have expressed willingness and desire, interest in developing preaching skills. There will be guest speakers this year from your own church. You need to be patient with them as you've been patient with me in developing as they develop these giftings. Um, There's a, a training seminar, a weekend in Costa Mesa in February that I'll be taking some people to that's specifically designed to help train up new preachers more of a workshop than a conference. If you're interested in going, I'll take you. Let's go. It's fun. It's two days. Uh, February 18th and 19th, I think. Um, So far, there's three of us going to that. I'll be looking forward to working with some of our men in our church who want to teach. I'm looking forward to giving them opportunity on midweek study and uh, eventually on Sunday mornings. Um, Again, if that's you, if that's an interest, a desire in your heart, it's a good desire. So talk to me. A few other things I'm excited for this year that fit nicely into the things that I've just mentioned. Brian and Madison Wozniak are going to be serving here in a more consistent role for the next two years. Uh, They'll be leading the youth ministries and the prayer ministries, which we'll have twice a month. I think next Sunday, but I'm not sure because that's his ministry, and I just got to let him do that, okay? I'm getting better at this. Um, So, And and also um, missions, which I'll mention in a second. Uh, Sean Roop has been and will be working with me more closely leading up to the sabbatical. Uh, doing sort of admin stuff and keeping guest speakers' schedules straightened out while I'm gone. This may be the first he's hearing about that live, so I'm glad that that he's watching. Uh, And he'll be doing more teaching as well. Uh, One last thing, another thing that I came into this ministry with, not a concern, but more of a hope. Uh, And the hope was to be a church that is 
heavily involved in global missions and reaching the unreached. And we have been, honestly, and we are. But I, I believe it or not, it's been five years since we sent our team to Nepal. I don't think any of us coming back would have guessed that we could have lasted five years without going back. Um, so you can plan on this year, uh, have two mission trips this year, one more local and affordable trip, probably in the summer, and uh, then an international trip in December of this year. Both will be for families, all ages, not like youth trip or anything like that. It's everybody. Everybody's invited. Um, more will be said on that later in the year, but FYI, the prayer meetings we have at church will be the place you want to be to learn what's going on with these trips. They will be built on prayer. The Wozniaks will be leading both those ministries, the prayer ministry and our mission trips, weeks and months, of course. Um, but for now, get your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians and save your questions for later. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in the introduction in the first three verses of chapter 1, which is as far as we'll get today, you're going to be introduced to Paul, who you've probably already been introduced to once or twice, Sosthenes, who you probably haven't been introduced to once or twice, and the church at Corinth, who you will be getting to know better and better over the next several months. Um, so we're going to read verses 1 through 3, we'll pray, then we'll turn right back over to Acts chapter 18 to see the backstory, then we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 1 to see these verses again in light of their historical context. So, Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, grant us mercy. Let's talk about Corinth. Uh, while you turn to Acts chapter 18, let me tell you about this city. Corinth was and is located on a narrow part of land connecting the Peloponnese Peninsula to mainland Greece. Uh, it is a bottleneck. Greece has the Ionian Sea on the west, and the Aegean Sea on the east. And to get from one sea to the other, you either have to sail around the south of Greece through a notoriously treacherous part of sea called Mylia. It was actually, there's, there's some proverbs kind of written about this area of the sea saying, let him who sails around Mylia first write his will. Things like that. Okay, so this is like not a place that you want to take your boat. Um, so you could do that. You could go around the south of Greece, for one, or you could cut off a couple hundred miles of that journey by going to Corinth on one side, either east or west, and literally hauling your ship over this four-mile stretch of land that separated the two bodies of water. Corinth, again, it's a bottleneck. It's the skinny part. And geographically, in, in many other ways, it is a bottleneck. Now, because of this traffic, because people would rather go to Corinth if they're getting from one sea to the next rather than sailing around, Corinth uh, was a very rich. Uh, it controlled the shipping industry in much of the ancient world. It was rich, it was prosperous, it was influential. And it almost, it, it's almost impossible for this kind of cultural supremacy not to go to people's heads, even in the church. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8, Paul turns this Corinthian idea of success 
around and he accuses them saying in what really seems to be a mocking tone. He says, you're already rich. Oh, you're already full. And then he goes on to show that the kind of riches they enjoyed were very different than the spiritual riches of the apostles and says, I wish you were rich in the right ways. Another thing about Corinth, because it was a hub for international travel, the city was multicultural in every sense. Everyone was there. Corinthians had everyone. However, it would be wrong to then call Corinth a melting pot, as sometimes people will do of multicultural areas. Melting, melting two or more materials into one implies a unity, and Corinth didn't have that. There are some things that just don't mix. And it's true that Corinth as a city had lots of different cultures within it, but it was not a united city. And in fact, few cities are. Cities are still divided by ethnic boundaries, economic boundaries, sometimes religious boundaries. Rather than unity, this leads to faction, at least a tribalism and lots of little separate places. You got Chinatown, you got Little Italy, and you got everything else, okay? I don't think they had either of those things in Corinth, but they had the equivalent, the first century equivalent. Now, um, before Paul, a few hundred years before Paul, Plato and Aristotle, they both addressed this idea that coastal cities would be the first to see uh, tears in their own social fabric. Now, Corinth was a coastal city on two fronts. It was a double coastal city because it had two coasts of two different seas. Um, they said that a coastal city would be the first to dissolve and, and, and lose any sort of uh, identity within itself. It would be the first to form factions rather than seek the good of a larger community. And of course, that's exactly what Paul has to address in the Corinthian church. The church had become uh, factious. It had become divided. Corinthians invented denominations in the worst way possible. Uh, these are the people who say, I'm of Paul. And then the other people say, I'm of Apollos. And other people want to be really holy and be like, well, I'm just of Jesus. I don't know about you guys. And you're like, no, you're getting it all wrong. You're just forming clubs. You're forming cliques. They were good at forming cliques and avoiding people who are different than them. And at one time, uh, more recently than Corinth, when Paul was writing, at one time, people thought the internet was going to bring people together. What it's actually done is given each person the opportunity to find someone almost exactly like them in opinions and worldview that lives across the world. And it's allowed them to form a bond with someone far, far away while ignoring their neighbors and shunning those in their actual community. Corinth was pre-internet, but uh, not by much. It was multicultural in every way, and that's a fine thing to be. But they were tearing the church apart by valuing their many different cultures and different opinions higher than the unity of the body of Christ. In finding people that they could agree with, each person was quick to form a small exclusive group at the expense of the unity of the church. It wasn't only doctrinal lines they were dividing over either. The economic divisions that exist in every city across the world has divided, uh, also divided their Sunday services. The rich took the best places, the poor went without. When the church would share a meal, Corinthians is the book where we get the uh, holy heaven-sent doctrine of potluck from, by the way. We'll get to that later on. When church would share a meal, there were people going hungry and other people gorging themselves. The problems of the city were becoming the problems of the church. And it's beautiful to see beyond even the end of Corinthians to, to Revelation in the book of Revelation, we see that the church is the only place where true diversity and true unity are perfectly seen. And it's seen as a city, in fact. Every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered singing the same song to the same God. 
Another geographical significance in Corinth was the, what's called the, the Acro-Corinth. You've heard of the Acropolis, okay? The first Acro just means that hill way up there, the tall one, okay? Um, so Acro-Corinth is the tall part of Corinth. Uh, the Acropolis is the high part of the city. It's the hill that the city, you know, in the city. So the Acro-Corinth is this 2,000-foot-high mountain right on the one side of town. Um, and this is where the city built its fortress. It's very noticeable. You look up, you see it. You can't miss it. Um, they had layers of concentric walls. At, the, at its uh, best, most prosperous time, there were literally miles of walls around Acrocorinth, and it was considered to be impenetrable. It was easily defended, and at the top of the mountain, there was a fresh spring of water, making the city impervious to siege. So they knew they had it made until the Romans showed up. So uh, Corinth had been conquered by the Romans in 146. They didn't break through the walls. They just beat their drums really loud and scared everybody, and then they handed them the keys of the city. True story. Um, but they rebuilt the city. They, they tore down uh, you know, all the, the businesses and things. They rebuilt the city. Julius Caesar built, rebuilt it in 44 BC. Uh, the walls around Acrocorinth are still there. You can walk up the hill to the top and see the Temple of Aphrodite, which we'll get back to in a second. But you can imagine how this feeling of superiority uh, this feeling of like, well, no one can touch us. Um, not just in the world of business and finance, but just in a general self-sufficiency and self-preservation. This could lead to an arrogance and a confidence in the wrong things. And it could contribute to that insular uh, nature that a lot of the cliques in Corinth uh, were you know, displayed. This was a Corinthian attitude. And once again, the problems of the city became the problems of the church. The Corinthian church saw itself as self-sufficient and beyond attack. Unfortunately, the attacks that they were defending themselves against was the attacks of the apostles saying, you're doing it wrong. And they're like, no, we're not. You can't, you can't tell us what to do. The Corinthian attitude was that they knew better, that they didn't have to listen to anyone else. They didn't have to submit to any kind of authority. After all, they were Corinthians. They couldn't be corrected. They were good enough, they were smart enough, and they were spiritual enough to figure things out their own way. This arrogance is something Paul addresses more in chapter 4. And the idea that they were smart enough will be corrected in chapter 1 when he says the cross is foolishness, and by the way, so are you. And that this idea that they were uh, superior spiritually, because they had all the gifts, and you know that they were beyond reproach, this is completely turned on its head when Paul shows them later on that to be spiritual is to serve others. That the gifts are given to each for all. If you're taking your spiritual gifts and then bringing them to your little small group, you're doing it wrong. They're for the church. The self-sufficiency and factional mentality of the Corinthians resulted in a people who had a greater allegiance to personal expression and personal opinion than they had in faith, hope, and love. This is why the operation of spiritual gifts spun out of control in Corinth. And it's why Paul writes chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now, I mentioned at the top of that hill, Acrocorinth, at, the, very, at the, the peak of their city was this temple to Aphrodite. And we've got to talk about this as much as you might want to skip it. Um, this temple of Aphrodite, she's the, the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and fertility, to put it nicely. Um, that's where the Corinthians worshipped. And in the temple, they, they had somewhere around a thousand priestesses who were cult prostitutes, who were available for people to use in order to worship the god Aphrodite. Corinth was a debauched, perverted city that did things during the day in public that other cities would only do at night in the dark corners of the bad part of town. 
the, the sexual perversion of Corinth was known far and wide throughout the ancient world. It had been known for this kind of behavior for a long time before Paul showed up. If you called someone a Corinthian girl, you were calling her a prostitute. Okay, a word had been coined, Corinthia zestai, to live like a Corinthian, which meant to live an intoxicated and debauched lifestyle. That's what the word meant. To be a Corinthian was to be immoral. Before Paul was even born, Greeks were writing plays with, uh, with Corinthian characters. And the Corinthian in a Greek play was the comic relief character that's really predictable, uh, but, but you still like him somehow anyway. The Corinthian in a play was always, always drunk. And it was a joke that the ancient world just couldn't get enough of. They thought it was hilarious. It was a stereotype that fit, and they loved it, and so did the Corinthians. They were fine with this reputation. Now, this was another thing that, that Plato actually called out uh, a long time before Paul had to deal with any of the problems. Plato understood about things about cities like Corinth. In his dialogue on laws, he says a port city, which again, Corinth is a double port city, right? He says a port city would be incurably unfit for the acquisition of virtue. In a character in that dialogue, he says, for if the state was to be on the seacoast and to have fine harbors, in that case, it would need, pay attention here, it would need a mighty savior and divine lawgiver if, with such a character, it was to avoid having a variety of luxurious and depraved habits. Luxurious and depraved habits, okay, we recognize those. Those define Corinth exactly. But the luxurious and depraved habits are not the final word for Corinth. Plato wrote kind of tongue-in-cheek that such a culture would need a mighty savior and a divine lawgiver if it would avoid this kind of depravity. And I would love to imagine Paul preaching the gospel in Corinth for a year and a half, we'll find out. He stays there 18 months, being able to tell them the mighty savior and divine lawgiver has come. Now, by the time 1 Corinthians is written, these luxurious and depraved habits that Plato had talked about had trickled into the church. Again, the problems of the city became the problems of the church. People were getting drunk at communion. That's why we do small cups. Okay? Uh, Paul, Paul rebuked the church in chapter 5 because it had come to his attention that a man has his father's wife. And whatever you think that means, it's worse. And that's not the only problem. The bigger problem is that the church had congratulated itself on its open-mindedness in welcoming this family. The morals of those in the church in Corinth were matching the morals of the city, or in some cases, Paul says they were worse. He says, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Like, people don't even want to talk about the stuff you're doing. And you're saying, ah, first century, the way to go, modern times. We're just so open-minded. Now, unfortunately, we could go on, and we will through the next several weeks. In chapter 15, we'll see that there are Christians in Corinth that don't even believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is kind of a big deal for Christians, if you remember. This should give you a, a good problem of the world in which Paul was ministering and the problems in the church in Corinth. G. Campbell Morgan pointed out the real underlying failure of the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians when he, he wrote this, the measure of failure on the part of the church is the measure on which she has allowed herself to be influenced by the spirit of the age. Corinth had been influenced, even led by the nose, by the spirit of the age. 
Now, anyone holding on to the nice pastel daydream that the early church was a holy, perfect little Sunday school club uh, where everything went great, that they will be quickly dispossessed of that illusion after reading through 1 Corinthians. It had problems you don't even want to talk about. And 1 Corinthians was written to put out fires. This was a church on fire. But 1 Corinthians is more than that. 1 Corinthians, it turns out, is far more than a cautionary tale. 1 Corinthians 13, which can be seen as one of the, one of the high points of the book, it's the love chapter, right? It's the, and it's the chapter that ends on those three cardinal virtues that I've already mentioned once this morning, faith, hope, and love. As much as the Corinthian church was plagued by immorality and failures of every imaginable kind, the story of the church of Corinth is one of hope. Now, you should be at Acts chapter 18. You should have a marker there or your, your finger. You can turn to Acts chapter 18. And I'll show you what I mean here. In Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1, it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, preaching the word of God among them. That's the story of how the church in Corinth was planted. Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's been going from city to city, not staying too long in each one. And then he comes to this rich, arrogant, wicked, divided, hostile city. And he goes and he gets a job making tents. You can actually go, you can still walk on the same street where the shops were, and one of the little squares they've marked out is probably Paul's tent, tent shop. Okay, you can go to, to Corinth and see this area where he, where he would have gotten a job. And as he follows this typical routine, his habit, uh, which is to go to the Jews first and then the Greeks, right? He goes to the synagogue and he tells them that Jesus is the Messiah. And normally, the way this works for Paul is that someone would get saved, the rest would want to kill him, he'd plant a church real quick, and then get out of town while he still had the chance. Uh, in uh, Thessalonica, for example, he only taught for three Sabbaths, and then left a church there that had so little comprehension of the repercussions of the gospel that they thought if a Christian died before Jesus came back in the second coming, then they didn't get to go to heaven. I mean, rumors can start if your you know, church has only three-week-old babies in it. So that's what Paul addresses in 1 Thessalonians, excuse me. So at first, it looks like this is the way it's going to go in Corinth, too. He testifies to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. They oppose him. No great big surprise there. He leaves the area, at least the synagogue. He stayed with a guy named Justice. 
Persecution is right outside the door, next door. This would normally be the time when someone lets Paul out of the city in a basket or something like that. But instead, the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision, indicating that it was Paul's intention to leave. Because God has to say, no, 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 you're not done here. So Jesus speaks to Paul in a vision, tells him he needs to stay. He needs to keep on preaching. And the Lord forbids Paul to keep silent. He promises his divine protection on Paul in Corinth. And then he says these alarming words. He says to Paul, I have many people in this city. Now bring to mind everything we've learned about Corinth so far. It's not a family-friendly place. And sure, there are a few new Christians here and there. You know, some got saved in the synagogue there. But Paul's got to already be thinking, this is not fertile ground for the seed of the gospel. This is not a friendly place. But God says, I have many people in this city. This is where I'm working. This is a beautiful surprise. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by it, but we are every time. The physician goes to the sick. Really? Wow, shocker. I never saw that coming. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. God works in dark places. God has many people in Corinth. Jesus telling Paul that he has many people in the city might remind you of Elijah. Elijah's prophesying in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, just the worst 